All right, all right. You guys can hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. And we are live, guys. Awesome. Hi, everybody. This is Carlos Alguero with Marketer Brothers. Ricardo is saying hello from Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And we have tonight a very, very special guest with us. And, um, you know, uh, I'm sorry we didn't give you more advance notice, but I think a lot of people are going to watch this one because yeah. we've gotten a huge interest for it. And, I mean, um, your, your, your background speaks for itself. Um, uh, Wally, Guadalupe Corona, you know, we're, we're so honored and, and privileged to have you here on our Marketer Brothers channel. Just to kind of give you a little background, and probably Ricardo already did, you know, our, our channel is purely uh, a way to get a message out to people that are in business for themselves, that are entrepreneurs, that want to start a business for themselves, or they're just that want to, you know, uh, help and support small businesses in, in here in America and, of course, all over the world. But, you know, we, we, we saw it fit, and, you know, as, as Veterans Day, is, is, is going to be uh, here very soon. We wanted to get in this channel, you know, people that have, um, have sacrificed and have really went uh, the extra mile in ser servicing and serving our country. So first of all, Wally, welcome to Marketer Brothers. We thank you for your service and we're honored to have you in our channel. I, of course, man. I, I, I appreciate you guys bringing me out here to, to uh, do this interview. That's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I'm excited and humbled. Yeah, and, and I'd love for Ricardo to kind of talk a little bit about your background. He has a little bit more background than me. So, Rick, if you want to introduce Wally and, and then we'll let him roll. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, so, mm. I actually met Wally at uh, the Batam Death March Memorial uh, in New Mexico. So, uh, uh, we, we, I think we both got, got roped into it through Jonathan Lopez, you know. Um, and uh, basically, we both show up not knowing what 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 it was or anything. And uh, I didn't even have a memorial death march, and it's it's awesome. It's it's a, it's a, it's basically twenty six miles in the middle of the White Sands uh, um, uh, missile range, and uh, you get to camp inside the base. And what 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 was what was crazy about this about the, um, this event is that it actually snowed. Like it's it's. It's New Mexico, and it is March, and it started snowing, and, and uh, we were, Lopez, Wally, and I were sharing a tent, and I mean, we were freezing, we were freezing a boss, man, <laughs> it was, it was pretty bad, so, but then we got through it, we did that whole event, it was awesome, and we became fast friends, and then, you know, a month later, uh, we were actually, we just did um, Spartan Dallas Beast together, um, literally two weeks ago. Uh, where Wally was actually a um, was actually an honoree for Operation Enduring Warrior, which is this uh, amazing foundation. We all, you know, we we he has a hat. I have the I have the shirt. We gotta get you a shirt too. Yes, please. Carlos, so <laughs> it's um. I'm gonna, it's amazing, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna earn, I'm gonna earn. I'm gonna earn the shirt. Oh, you know, oh there you I'm, go. I'm gonna earn it. I'm gonna you're, go run. Gonna I'm gonna run with you guys. You're gonna earn it in December, man. December, the, the December, that, uh, Florida Beast, man. You're 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 gonna earn it there for sure. <laughs> so so yeah, you know we did the Dallas Beast and and um, Wally was an honoree for Operation Enduring Warrior, which uh, which what that means is um, the athletes. We you're gonna you guys are gonna see a link to to Operation Enduring Warrior on this page, but 
that they, they have mass athletes, which are um, all, all former vets or um, first responders. And basically, they, their job is to help honorees go through the course, no matter what. And uh, they wear these uh, the gas masks, and they're anonymous. They have a call sign. They do not, they cannot actually take their mask off ever. So you're talking about 16 miles, nine hours in a race, and these guys are just, it's hot outside, and they're just wearing this mask the entire time and through all yeah. these events. And it's an amazing experience to run with them. Uh, I always invite everybody, if somebody wants to come and, 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 and run with us in, the, in, the, in, the Dal in the Florida Beast in December, please come. It's, it's an amazing experience. It will truly change your life. So without, you know, so through both, both of those events, man, it's, we, we, we've become brothers, you know, with, with Wally and, and it's just, uh, he's, he's part of our family, our ROW family. And, and, um, you know, I just want to, want to share his amazing story, bring awareness for Veterans Day and also for Operation Doing Warrior that, um, and actually he's wearing a, a Battle Bar shirt, which is also a veteran a veteran um, a company that that literally just donated a giant five thousand dollar check to Operation During Warrior at the Florida, at the Florida uh, I mean at the Dallas Beast, and those guys are amazing, man. Those guys are amazing. So so you we're just trying to tie it all together and uh, help vets, help vets, and help people get 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 out there. You know. That's awesome. So who is Wally Corona? <laughs> <laughs> That's me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll just get, get into my own little thing. So I'm um, born and raised in, in South Texas, a little town called San Benito down in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, it's, it's down there, down by Brownsville, South Padre Island area. Oh, man, we have a story down there. We'll tell yeah. it in another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I didn't know you were exactly from there, man, but yeah, I, I, we're going to tell you a story soon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, two older brothers, uh, a lot older, you know, mom and dad. So I grew up, loved it there. It was a very unique experience growing up there, um, mixed culture and stuff, and it's awesome, you know. Uh, so graduated high school and actually earned a scholarship to University of Texas at Austin. Nice. And uh, while I was in high school, I had always kind of said, like, yeah, I want to join the military. The military is kind of what I wanted to do. Um, but I wanted to be like it. I wanted to be in it on the ground, kicking in doors and all that stuff and uh, took a step back. So I, I got a scholarship and I, I promised my mom that I would I would try. And so I went to UT Austin and I did a year. I did a year in college before I, I went back to the original idea of just, it's just not for me. The college life was not for me. And I I wanted to get back in and, and have that mindset join the military. So, so I'm going to join the military. Um, Christmas break came around. And like a lot of my major decisions in life, I kind of just roll the dice and whatever happens, like that's the direction I'm going. And I don't think twice about it. So that's the Christmas, it, man. yeah, Christmas break came around and I, I actually called, a Marine recruiter, an Army recruiter, and an Air Force recruiter and left messages at their machines. And I was like, hey, I want to join the military and I'm kind of interested in all that stuff. Uh, the very first one to call me back was the Air Force recruiter. 
And so I was like, sold, you got me, you win. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's a lesson in business, right? Yep. That, that, that money, love, money, loves, money loves speed. So if you have a lead, do it now. So that's good. And because of that, you're in the Air Force. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm here I am 13 years later, still committed to it. So, wow. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to join the Air Force. I ended up leaving in May of 2007. I joined the Air Force and came straight into as an EOD tech. Um, explosive ordnance disposal, hands down, best job in the world. Uh, I, I joined EOD because I, I wanted to help people. And I had originally thought about some type of special forces thing, maybe a PJ, something like that, somewhere I could get in there and, and still be in the fight, but at the same time, it was more geared towards helping people. Um, but I, I had glasses back then, I've had surgery since then, so that kind of negated a lot of the different careers that, that were in the special forces genre. Mm. But EOD, to me was as much about helping people as you can get. And I love it because it's, it's very tangible. And, and I mean that because you, it's, it's bomb disposal, it's bomb squad, right? So there's, there's an explosive hazard right there that's intent is to harm us, coalition forces, our friends, or at the worst, civilians in their own country yeah and then eod comes in and we get to do our thing and now that that threat's gone and that's a very tangible reaction to that there was something that was bad there i come in i get to do my job and now that bad thing's gone right so i like i loved it i still do it's it's awesome um took me about a year to get through training eod school's rough I mean, it's dangerous, right? Yeah, I was like, it, it has to be, right? Yeah. So uh, it took me about a year to go through. And in May of 2008, after graduating EOD school, I found myself in uh, Ramstein Air Base, Germany. And that was awesome. Living in a different country overseas, uh, getting to travel all the time, all oh, the beer selections that are, it was rough living, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> you know, you know as, I, as, I, as, I, as I work more with veterans, and I, I'm not a veteran, man, but the stories about, the, about drinking, it, they're, they're legendary. I mean, <laughs> it's, I mean, I was literally in Patrick's Air Force Base, you know, two days ago, interviewing Lopez, man, and uh, I walk in the base, man, the, the, at 7 p.m., the Burger King's closed, everything's closed, but you go in the P in the PX man, and and, it, and there's more alcohol in that place. That is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It was rough. It was rough. I I hated every minute of it. <laughs> Anybody gets an assignment over there, don't go. Give it to me. I'll take it. Yeah. You'll trade. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, 2008. So. Iraq's still in full swing. Afghanistan's starting to pick up. War is huge in the mentality of, of America and the military, right? So even though I get a chance to be in Germany, it was train, training, training, training. Because um, it's, it's, it's not if, it's when your deployment comes, you need to be ready. Because 
they're not you're not going for a cakewalk anymore like if you get picked up for a deployment it's you're you're in it yeah so uh i got the opportunity to deploy for my very first time towards the end of 2009 uh went to afghanistan and that was is different it it's deploying is one of those things that like the memories that i have from it, it are the the extremes some of the best moments in my life are sitting around a campfire in the middle of nowhere telling stories and at the same time you know within the same 24-hour period huddling behind a wall thinking like well this is it like this is how it's gonna happen and there's just everything in between so i'm you know attached to the army in the mountains of Afghanistan uh, over the winter where they're like, oh, it's the winter and nobody fights during the winter up there because it snows and it's cold and it's kind of bullshit. So it turns out to just us going out in the snow dealing with randomness over the winter. Um, but yeah, it was, overall it was a good deployment. But about a month in, uh, so it was, Two days after my, let's see, 2009. So two days after my 23rd birthday, I got my very first firefight. And as much as I was prepared to, to go to Afghanistan and to like drive a robot and disarm a bomb and attach to the army and all that stuff, what I wasn't prepared for was the mentality that came with that so you know at very first firefight things happened right uh, it came down to a situation where inevitably it was a few guys and it was me I was up in my armored vehicle and I was in on you know man in the gun and uh, I had to pull the trigger and so we get back to the camp that night and, uh, you know, adrenaline still rolling. I was just, I was all over the place. And as soon as we got back to the FOB, the camp, FOB, Forward Operating Base, as soon as we got back to the FOB, um, it was met with praise. Army guys were like, yeah, dude, you got some. That's awesome. And high fives and happiness and everything. And I was like, yeah, sweet. Like, I did it that's awesome. It's cool, whatever. But then later that night, like that, my adrenaline just dumped everything that caught up to me really caught up to me. And I remember laying in my bunk thinking I was, I'm not ready for this. Like mentally, I'm not ready for this. I was raised, I was raised as a strict Catholic. So thou shalt not kill as pretty black and white. Like there's no like, well, maybe, or, or if, right. But that's, that's finite. And I really struggled with that. I tried to uh, convince myself, oh, you know, well, it's war and, and all these different kind of excuses, I guess, but, but it like, it stuck with me. And I, I really could not figure out a way to get up over that hurdle. 
the problem was I was two months into a six month deployment. Yeah. And it kept going, you know? So a couple more firefights, a couple more IEDs, a few post blasts. So post blast is when, you know, it's, it's after the detonation, somebody has hit something that blew up and we have to go clear it. So it was, it was give and take for a while. I came back from, and you're only 23 years old. Yeah. 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 Right. And even then within like EOD, within the career field, I, I was kind of an anomaly because I was a little bit older than a lot of the young guys. And it took me over a year and a half from on that first base before I deployed. There were a lot of guys that I went through tech school with, you know, came up in training that were 19, 20 years old, graduated EOD school, got to their first base. And then within six months, they were overseas. Wow. So me, I was considered a little bit more mature, even though I was just as, as young and naive as all these other guys. But yeah, that's just the height of it, of how, how the tempo was and how often things were going on over there. So, And mo most people are, haven't even figured out what, what they want to do at that age. And you're already out there doing war. Well, to be fair, I, I, it's the military, so yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, you get dictated because, right. I mean, I'm going to school right now while I'm in the military, but only because I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, so I'm going to ride this wave out until it's over and then maybe find something else, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but. So you're, 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 you're in the middle of it, you're halfway in, struggling mentally, yeah. right? And, and you just, you have to keep going. Like, it's not like, yeah, I'm going to take a sick day. I'm not doing this. Right. Like, you've got, there's the next mission. You have to keep going. So finish out that deployment. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of other things go on while we're over there. But I come back from that and I'm, I'm not sleeping right. I started self-medicating a lot. Um, but at the same time, I didn't know that I was self-medicating. I was drinking because I'm in the military and I'm stationed in Germany. Like, heck yeah, of course I'm going to go drink. Like, why not? Right. So I was struggling a little bit. In that time, I find out that uh, I'm PCSing. I got orders to a different base. So I, I found out that I'm going to Tyndall Air Force Base down in Panama City, Florida. And... Again, rough assignment. The beaches and the weather, not my first choice by far, um, but somebody's got to do it. So. Um, but before I left, I started having nightmares. I started uh, getting angry and I wasn't sleeping good and just it, something wasn't clicking, right? And at that time, too, like that whole PTSD was kind of, it was new for our modern, our, the modern war, Iraq, Afghanistan, like people were fighting it for so long and going back and forth and, and just kept going that it, you know, even now we're at a point where years later, there's still people out there that, that are just undiagnosed because either they're hiding it or they don't want to go get help or, you know, it's just, but even at that time in the air force, PTSD wasn't a thing. Hmm. So 
the stigma was very real. Uh, realizing that I had all these different problems going on, uh, I went to a couple of guys at work and I was like, hey, something's not right. Like, I, I think I think I need to go, go talk to somebody. Like, I'm gonna go to, to mental health, which in the military world, the mental health facility that's like it's your therapist it's your psychiatrist it's the crazy house so i was like yeah i'm gonna go talk to somebody and i i remember the look on on this guy's face and he was just like we're just gonna put that you're at a medical appointment and and don't have to to tell anybody or say anything so like right off the bat that stigma was like right there we don't go to mental health. We don't talk about. It's like, right. all be right, tough. be tough, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I still went because I was like, at worst, I'm leaving in a few weeks anyway. Whatever. I was extremely fortunate to get a uh, a good provider who was able to just, dude, it's okay to come talk. Just because you come talk to us, like nothing bad happens, all that stuff. So it, he he really stripped down the barriers and and the the frontness of like wanting to get help. Like, okay, that that makes sense. So so I saw him for a couple of weeks, and, but inevitably I had to leave. I had I had to go to, to Florida, right? So I, uh, I I leave Germany, and my girlfriend at the time was back in Texas, and we had already been talking about you know getting married and building a life and all that stuff, and so. I had this idea that I would go to Texas and pick her up and the rest of my stuff too, because I just left it at my mom's house and I was like, Hey, I'm joining the military. I don't need anything. Bye. And it turns out that that's not the case. Like how you still need stuff. So I had to go back home and get some of my stuff anyway. I, so I pick her up, we drive to Panama city, Florida and I should basically show up to the base and they're like, Oh, you're here. Uh, don't bother unpacking. You're, you're going back overseas in a couple of months anyway. And I was like, bah, yeah, all right, whatever. Like, that's fine. And so I didn't go back to mental health. Like I had told myself I would, because if I went there, I would have gotten redlined from the deployment. And at this point I kind of wanted to go. Right. So, why not? Um, my girlfriend at the time, supposed to, the plan was for her to go back to Texas, right? And I'm going to go deploy and then come back and then we'll, we'll, we'll work on building the life together after that. So like three days before she flies back, she gets real sick. We couldn't figure out like why. I, I felt horrible. We went out to eat and I made her try oysters for the first time. And then like that night she like was throwing up and it just felt awful. And we ended up going to the ER and I was like, Oh no, she did, oysters are just bad. I shouldn't have done it. And so I felt real bad. Um, inevitably though, the, the doc basically tells us like, Hey, we're, uh, we're not going to know for sure until we do more tests. And it was probably going to be a, a biopsy that we're going to have to do. And I was, I was blown away. I was like, I don't, I don't understand what you're telling me right now. So, well, I, I think she's got cancer. 
and that I was floored. Like I, I legitimately had no idea what to do. So me, her and the doctor came up with a plan. I was like, well, she's supposed to fly back to Texas in like two days. Um, can, can she wait to do that? Or, you know, what's the plan? It, somehow in the conversation, it, it happens that she's changing planes in Houston. And he was like, oh, Houston, MD Anderson's in Houston. That's like the number one cancer hospital. People come from all over the world to get treated there. Yep. So we come up with a plan that he's going to print out all these documents and run more tests and stuff. And she was going to have a packet. And instead of changing planes, she would just get off at Houston and go to the MD Anderson emergency room and say, I think I have cancer and hand them the papers. And at that point she has to get admitted. And then, you know, they kind of have to treat her there because it's continuation of care. Like she's already established as, as a patient there. And so she does that. And then I think it was like a, within a week, she was uh, diagnosed with leukemia and she was on oral chemo. Wow. Just, it was quick. It was quick. Um, so she was doing that. Um, family comes up to stay with her because now she's in, in Houston. And a lot of that stuff was kind of in and outpatient, it was a mix. And so she was staying, basically living at a hotel. And so they were burning through money quick. And we were already talking about, you know, building a life together and everything. And so they just kind of sped the process up. So I fly to Houston to go visit her. Uh, we get married. And now she's on my insurance. But like, that was the plan anyway. So timelines just kind of changed. So she's getting treated. It's getting covered, but I'm still in Panama City, and now this deployment's coming up. Uh, I end up going to training, and she gets a bone marrow transplant about five days before I fly back to Afghanistan for my second tour. So she was going through her thing, and I left to go fight a war again. How hard was it to, to leave? I'm going to be honest. And it's weird because I've never actually said a lot of this stuff out loud before, but I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was getting into and I didn't know what was happening. So there's definitely a part of me that was, it was running away. Hmm. It, 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 it was so easy at the time to be like, ah, oh, my hands are tied. I'm in the military. I got to go to war. Um, but I think it was just so rough overall because like, I, it's not like I could be in Houston with her, you know, like the military's not going to be like, yeah, we'll just keep giving you a check and you go live over there and don't come to work and don't do anything like that's not, wasn't going to happen. So I, I don't know, but I left, mm -hmm. went. And if that first deployment was bad, man, that second one was, that was rough. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. Um, down in Helmand province, Afghanistan, and uh, in this little place, um, 
before it got built up. It got built up a lot after we left, but it was it was Fab Shikvani. It was more like a cop. Like it just it was small. It was tiny. There was our three man Air Force team. Um, I don't know, maybe a dozen Marines total, and then like 50, 60 Georgians, and then some like Afghani army guys. And it's just us on top of the hill with one roll of the Constantina wire going around the whole, the whole little place, like four tenths total. It was tiny, it was small. And uh, Georgians. They are a special breed. Um, we've got the term herding cats. It's, it's kind of, yeah, that, that's what it was working with the Georgians. They're, they're man, uh, the, the country, the country of Georgia, not so much the state. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe the state, but no, we're not. Uh, yeah. For those of you tuning in from Georgia, just to clarify. Yeah, I, just I bet you everybody. I bet you everybody was thinking, yeah, yeah. I mean, people from Atlanta. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, unfortunately, the Georgians got really, really good. Oh, something just popped up. There we go. Pretty good. All right. Unfortunately, the Georgians um, got really, really good at, at finding IEDs and roadside bombs the hard way, not the good way. So inevitably what that meant too is that me and my team got really good at medical stuff. So they, they back then they called it CLS, combat lifesaver, um, tourniquets, quick clock gauze, you know, just doing what we can to save this guy's life because it's, it's not like, you know, he's got a paper cut or he's got a bad rash. Like I'm, we were rolling on scene to guys missing both their legs and it happened a lot. So that second tour was, was rough. Um, more firefights, more, I, a lot more IEDs, a lot more post blasts, a lot more medical stuff going on. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a rough tour. So, um let's see yeah i guess in february april april 2007 um they had this plan that the villagers in this particular village wanted to take their village back they wanted to reopen their bazaar and reopen their shops and they wanted all the villager people to come back in so they came up with this operation where we were basically going to clear the whole village door to door, every foot of it, completely clear and like give it back to the people. And in the beginning, we weren't really a part of that. Um, there was another army team that came in with their own direct support unit uh, attached to a Marine, um, huge Marine element that was going to go through and clear all that stuff. And so I woke up April 7, 2011, like any other day. Um, Woke up, I put my combat Crocs on and went outside and made some instant coffee and watched the sunrise. Like, that's just what we did, you know? Uh, so at this point, we're getting a little bit of info of like, hey, you know, they just got another ID. It's like, oh, they cleared two more. I'm like, oh, 
a truck hit one, but it was tiny, so no, nothing bad happened. You know? So around lunchtime, we get called in, and they're like, hey, we need you guys to gear up. There was an ID that detonated, uh, injured four people, and two of them were the Army EOD team. So they have no support, so you guys got to go in there and, and pick it back up. All right. So we gear up, we get our stuff together, and we roll in. Um, the the element was was pretty spread out throughout this village. Um, they've been broken down in different teams, and they were all clearing different stuff. So as we're driving our truck in, the Marine flags us down. Um, my team leader, Joe, Joe hops out. He talks. He comes back in, and he's like, hey, they've got a small ID in this doorway. It's, you know, a little a little five-pound charge. So at this point, we had been talking to – the leader, uh, the LT that was in charge of the operation on the ground, and we were like, hey, he, he, they were sitting on four different IEDs throughout the village. And so we convinced them that like, and they had only cleared about half of it. And, you know, multiple IEDs had already gone off. They'd already found a bunch and stuff, but, you know, guys were getting injured. So we convinced the LT that like, you know, we will come in and take care of those four IEDs. We'll recover your people to regroup and get out of here. Like there's no point continuing on with this mission. So essentially, yes, that was the plan. So Joe puts a charge on the one in the door because if, if all we're doing is saving people, I'm not trying to get evidence to make sure that the bad guys go away, right? We're just gonna get rid of the hazard, get these guys back and, and then you know call it a day. So Joe takes care of the one in the doorway. As he gets in the back in the truck for us to go meet up with the LT, He's like, yeah, these guys said that there's a well inside this building. They're going to go take a look at real quick. Okay. So we drive out, meet with the LT. While they're talking, detonation back from that building. So Joe hops back in the truck. We flip a UE and we head back to that building. When we get there, there's a Marine that falls out of the front door. Um, and he's yelling for a medic and he's yelling for a stretcher. And so a well-rehearsed plan, you know, Joe grabs his metal detector and hops out. I grab the radio and a couple other things that I kept up front and hop out. And then our third guy, Franco, grabs our med bag and hops out. And so we meet up with the Marine and, uh, we're waiting on, on Franco. He's got to get out of the back of the truck and the med bag got hung up a little bit. And so I'm yelling at him to hurry up. Franco gets there and I turn around and Joe's gone. Joe had already gone in the building. And I was like, well, okay. So I turned to the Marine and he was holding a metal detector and I was like, you have to clear us in. And he was like, okay. And so he like led me and Franco in and we turned the corner and in the back of the building, there's two Marines that are, badly injured uh one was a, a triple amputee and then the other one was just a bad frag and you know lacerations and he was bleeding real bad and so we fell into that rhythm again so we you know get down franco opens the med bag and he throws a tourniquet on joe throws another tourniquet on that guy and i'm i'm on the other dude and then some more marines come in the back door and they start helping and uh one of them hands me his uh his medevac car and he's cause I'm, I've got the radio. So he's like, call in a medevac. And I was like, okay. And so I like walk back around the hallway 
and I'm calling in a, a medevac on the radio back and forth. And uh, while that happens, while that's happening, I hear a metal detector go off right next to me. And I turn just in time to see that other Marine, the one that cleared us in, uh, he had gotten a, a hit with his metal detector and he like goes to take a knee. And I remember like trying to step and stop him and then just out. Wow. So that ID went off and it, it unfortunately it killed him instantly. Um, but I was three, four feet ish away wow. and got blasted like into a wall, knocked out, uh, completely unconscious. And uh, yeah, it's just, kind of chaos at that point um memory gets a little foggy from there on uh talking to, to joe and franco after the fact they were like yeah somebody saw you from the door a couple minutes later and they yelled at you because you know if something goes off nobody's theoretically shouldn't go rushing back in unless there's other ones so they were yelling at me from the doorway and uh and that like at some point I was out of the building and next to the truck and uh, I kept trying to like go back in the building to help because my, my teammates were in there. Other guys were injured. You know, there was the, the Marine who was killed and Joe had to keep telling me like, no, no, you sit down and no. So they pulled the rest of the guys out. Um, at some point I figured out that nobody had finished calling the medevac. So I got a hold of another radio and recalled in a medevac. And I don't remember that either. They coordinate everything. Um, medevac bird comes. And I essentially was like kind of tricked to get on the bird. Like I, I don't, I, Joe or Franco, one of them said like, you have to watch him. And I was like, okay. And so we like, get on the helicopter and then somebody told me to sit down and so i was like okay and then i sat down and then we were like flying away and i was like i don't know what's happening like i didn't know what was going on or why i was there or any like so i'm amazed you were awake after that what's that i'm amazed you were even awake after after the blast and and, and conscious yeah it took a few minutes from what they told me. It took several minutes before I started actually coming back. And that, yeah. I mean, it's, but you were conscious enough to call the medevac, actually, you know, so, so. So, but that's the thing is like, I don't think that anything was really clicking at that point. I think, I, I think at that point it was just training. Instinct, yeah. Yeah, we'd gone over it over and over and over again. And so that, you know, when you're not thinking, you, you revert back to the basics and the training kicks in and it just happens. But yeah, so I get back from that deployment and that is just, that's not good. Um, so were you, were you hurt other than, you know, obviously it was, you had a blast going on three, four feet uh, from you. Like physically yeah. were you, were you, were you hurt? Um, I made it out with all my fingers and toes. Uh, I was diagnosed with a moderate TBI, traumatic brain injury. Um, because of all that stuff too, so like I've got these super sweet bionic ears, 
Uh, I got hearing aids. I've had those since I was like 26 or something. Yeah. Um, some shoulder pain, joint pain. Essentially, I was okay, but I got rocked. I got rocked real bad. I had a real bad headache. Um, yeah. So, but I, I, I came out all right. You know, I'm still dealing with a little issues internally and, and fallout from that, but we haven't been able to pinpoint exactly what all that stuff is until way later. So, right. We're getting there. Even now, a decade later, we're still finding random stuff that they're attributing to that incident. Yeah, you showed me at the at the Dallas the Beast. You you actually showed me like behind your back. Oh yeah, random little scars and stuff. Were they traveling out there recently? So they're still finding traveling yeah. all over you, right? Yep, random stuff that they're like, "Is this mud?" And they're like, "Well, it might have been. I don't know. My body just like formed fat around a foreign object, and they're like, it's a tumor.' And I was like, ah." Could it not be though? Like, yeah. let's do something else. But they, you're like, yeah, no, it's just a. They call them lipomas. Some foreign gets in there, and the fat just kind of builds up around it, and then they got to take them out. Like, all right. Uh, the what really stuck with me on that deployment was all mental. Um, an insane amount of survivor skill, right? That one. What it boiled down to was, I'm supposed to be the explosive expert. And I was feet, a couple of feet away from an explosive device that killed someone. Like that, that's got my fault written in bold letters. Yeah, it's huge. And, and, years of wearing that just man it still gets me every once in a while you know that's that's a huge thing that to, yeah um so i i come back from that deployment and my, my wife at the time uh you know she'd been going through her recovery that whole time mm -hmm. And I was off doing my thing and then I get injured. So we come back and right away it's, it's different, but we're going to stick it out. Right. That's, that's what you say. It's, we're going to do it. And, uh, so I went back to mental health kind of immediately. I was like, Hey, I got stuff going on, but I found myself even, even going through that, I found myself holding back. Like I had everything kind of in reserve and uh, tensions built at home and things went back and forth and it just, it things just weren't going well. I started not performing well at work. I, I started struggling at home. Um, my social life became just drinking self-medicating in excess. And then I found out a couple years later, hey, you're deploying again, this time to, to Saudi Arabia. Hmm. And so now I for sure had to hold back, right? I can't tell mental health everything because now I can't go on that deployment. Right. 
And again, with things rough at home and rough at work, it was, it was easy to run. It was easy to go somewhere else and have it not be my problem for a few months. And so I go to Saudi Arabia and that deployment was insanely boring. They had nothing going on. Uh, didn't have to wear a uniform a few, you know, through a lot of it just cause it like, unless there was a meeting happening, which never did, or we had a visitor come, which is few and far between at that time, there wasn't really a lot going on. So we didn't really have to do anything. Um, few calls here and there, but nothing major. So when I came back from that deployment, that one, that's where things like, all right, me and my wife at the time had to sit down. We're like, hey, we are two different people now. Cancer changed her and war definitely changed me. Uh, and it was very touch and go for a bit, for a while. Um, yeah. In 2012, EOD lost Team Tripwire, and Brian Bell, the one of the guys in Team Tripwire, actually graduated uh, tech school with me. Hmm. Me and him went through training together, right? And so that hit me hard. Hey, so what is, um, just to, for perspective, oh. what is Team Tripwire? So... When you deploy, when EOD, Air Force EOD deploys, we, we deploy in three-man teams. And so there, a lot of the teams will give themselves team names. Um, <laughs> my second deployment to Afghanistan, we were Team Kittenmans, just because that's, that's what it was. Uh, so they, were, they had labeled themselves Team Tripwire. And so when, when, when uh, they passed, it, it was their entire team that went. Wow. Uh, happened a couple of times uh, in early Iraq. Uh, Air Force EOD lost Team Lima, and same thing, all, all three in one vehicle gone. And so when, when Brian left like that, kind of rocked me a little bit more too. And after that, uh, a year or so later, there were a lot of different, you know, marriage was going down the drain. Um, work was suffering. It just, there are so many culminating things that just one bad night of drinking and on the weekend, and I took it too far. And uh, I basically was like, I was done. There's, there was so much going on that I was done. And uh, so I attempted suicide. I inevitably put a Glock 19 to my head and I actually pulled the trigger. And uh, I had a bad primer on a 9 mil round. Before I had done that, I had actually took a lot of sleeping meds also. Don't know how many I had or how many I took because I've been drinking a lot. And I, I think I told myself that that was like my fallback plan, right? Was that 
because when 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 the gun didn't go off, I had this moment of like, that's okay. At least I can still go to sleep. Like I, I was all right with it. And what's crazy is that all I did was sleep. I slept for like 18 hours and then just woke up. And what's even more crazier than that is Monday came around and I went right back to work again. Didn't tell anybody, nothing. And I was actually still going to mental health through all of this. So I didn't even tell my therapist, like weekly meetings, like, ah, you know, ups and downs, everything's fine. But no, like I, I, I got so good at putting my depression face on. Yeah. Nobody questioned it. Nobody thought about it at all. So just kept on going, went to work, went home, things got worse. Um, towards the end of 2014, uh, I, I started going back there. I started going, having those bad thoughts again. And that's when I was like, all right, I'm done. Like I, I for realsies, I need to get help. So I'm back to mental health and I kind of came clean of like, Hey, I'm not okay. I no holds barred told them what was going on and that I was struggling and yeah. So go got referred off base to Emerald Coast Behavioral Clinic and was doing what's called intensive outpatient therapy. So I was going to basically group therapy for like three hours a day and then going to work the second half of the day. And that, but that was not, that group was just like a random eclectic group. So there, you know, there was an elderly woman who had lost her husband of like 55 years. And so she was getting help for that. There was your 18 year old kid who got kicked out of the house and told to go to college or get a job and couldn't cope. And so he was there for that. And then like, and so I'm trying to go through things that are not relatable to any of these people at all. Right. And uh, they tell me that there's a, a military wing inside this hospital and that, uh, it, that it's just for military and it's uh, like focused. And it's like, all right, well, I mean, maybe that would help. And I, I kind of had an outburst that morning in group, which is why they brought it up. Because when I was like, yeah, I mean, maybe that'll help. They'll be like, Good, because we already called somebody and they're bringing you clothes and you're not leaving. And I was like, oh, cool. All right, well, made that decision for me, I guess. And so technically, I was committed to an inpatient facility. Oh. Yeah. Um, but in true, in true EOD fashion, I went, in, I went in swinging, right? We're still going to be awesome. Still going to be great. Uh, so in true fashion, it took me about 39 days to complete a 23-day program. So strong right off the bat. <laughs> Still breaking records, guys. Um, but that place changed my life. Completely changed. It turned everything around because that gave me the opportunity to like just sit in a box and shut everything else out and focus on me. 
And in all of that, like the world changed. Um, divorce papers, basically I, you know, I'm not going to say that like work took me seriously at that point, but like, you know, that's when it kind of clicked that like, Hey, maybe he's not all right. Like maybe we should take a look at this a little differently. And so, you know, everything just kind of, kind of changed. So moving from inpatient back into the job again, you know, I had to transition back to intensive outpatient therapy and did that for, I don't know, like a month, two months, something like that. And then I had to go back to mental health, obviously, and was doing that. And uh, it, it changed everything, but it gave me a, it gave me a baseline, starting point. Um, yeah, so, so things changed. And I was fortunate to have good leadership at the time because, at, you know, most other places, they're like, hey, like that's it you know especially in the military yeah uh i was i was basically in a mental institution right and so you can't have access to guns anymore which in the military is kind of a big thing um you can't have access to explosives which being a bomb technician can get a little tricky <laughs> um i had a top secret clearance that i was questioning if that was going to stay on if that was going to be a thing anymore or not like there were a lot of things that i had no idea what to happen what was going to happen but i had really good leadership a couple of officers in my unit were awesome uh first sergeant was was fantastic um guys in the flight it, it i it worked because everything, all, all of my like rights and abilities that got taken away during that time, they put a safety net on there, right? So they were like, hey, you can't have access to weapons. But then they put a letter underneath that that they were like, hey, just because he can't have access to weapons doesn't mean that he's not a qualified EOD tech. They're like, well, you can't use explosives. And they're like, well, just because he can't use explosives doesn't mean that he's not of sound mind and judgment and can like run ops and still run a program manage and stuff so they put that safety net on there which is huge because i've had a couple of other leadership elements that would have been like hey you good now you're 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 good you're level you're even now good all right well you're out of the military so have fun mm -hmm. and, and they made sure that that didn't happen so you know it's been a rough start or you know that was that was definitely the baseline and and since then you know i've, I've definitely come back up but it's, it's rocky. It's been a struggle, you know, so that you know, divorce and stuff on the personal aspect, personal life side, the divorce and that finalized. And then I completely not looking, got just sideswiped meeting somebody else. And after months of trying, she finally agreed to go on a date with me. And, um, that was kind of instantaneous too. You know, we're like, you have what's that, 15, four years later now, um, married and uh, our daughter just turned one back in July. So that, that like it's a whole other, it's different. Right. And then it worked too. So back at, at, at Tyndall in, you know, just kind of, reestablishing myself again as like hey i'm i'm a 
I'm an okay Air Force guy. Okay, I'm not great. Yeah, definitely not. But I'm an okay Air Force guy. I'm an okay EOD guy. And, and, and just trying to prove myself and, and build that back up, right? And it's been ups and downs. Um, October 2018, stationed in Panama City, Florida, Hurricane Michael hits. And that was something that was, you know, talk about curveballs, man. Me and my wife had just bought a house in February. And then the hurricane hits in October. Jeez. Our daughter, you know, three months old, not even three months old. And we get the order to evacuate. And so my wife and my daughter, they go to Jacksonville, Florida. My wife's got family there. I'm like, hey, pack an overnight bag. Hurricanes happen all the time here. You'll go, spend the weekend, come back in about three or four days. I'll pick up that one tree that falls. I'll get a chance to clean the garage and cut the grass and fix that plug. And like, I had a list of things that were going to happen. It was awesome. But you wake up in the morning and it's a category four hurricane. And that was life changing. Panama City is still not the same by any means there's all right let me finish my portion the house the house blew away so yeah uh it came out to like 70 something thousand dollars in damages on a house that we had just bought wow um and luckily i was able to have the opportunity that my dad came up and helped me uh we you know redid the walls completely redid the flooring on that stuff. The only thing that we contracted out was the roof because I'm not getting on a roof in Panama City, Florida. And um, my entire AC unit needed to be replaced and I'm not crawling around in an attic to replace the AC unit. But they completely had to redo our house. And like I said, I was lucky that my dad came because there's still people now over a year later waiting on contractors to go fix stuff from over a year ago. Um, yeah, so, so, so an interesting thing you said to me in, in Dallas, which yeah. I had no idea, I mean, I live here in Florida. I mean, yes, Florida is big and it, it takes me like four hours to get there, but, but uh, Panama City Beach and Panama City are two different places, right? And, uh, you know, Panama City, uh, don't, you don't really hear about Panama City at all. You, you just hear the beach and spring break and, you know, the big oh, nightclubs and it's all... It's all it's all spring break great, great but but you you told me it's the forgotten coast so, you know it's the, it's the forgotten city so it they used to pride themselves on being called the forgotten coast because there were a lot of stretches on that beach that have weren't overly developed and you know you could go there and find a nice secluded beach that's not all built up and super serene and then they you know it's called the emerald coast too because with how the currents go and all that stuff, the, the water, man, there's times of the year where that water is just a nice emerald green and it's awesome. The beaches are fantastic, white sandy beaches. It's, it, it was great. But they have truly transitioned into the coast that was forgotten because they were on national, we were on national news for a week. I mean, the, the president came down and visited and uh, toured everything. It was horrible. And the base, 
100% of the facilities on Tyndall Air Force Base were damaged. Hmm. Everybody that lived in base housing could no longer live on base anymore. Where, what happened to them? Like, they, they, from October to December, they had skeleton crews come down to Tyndall to help clear out trash and clear out debris and, and go through, you know, you could go through your stuff and all that stuff. But basically in December, they said, hey, we need everybody to come back. Unfortunately, not your families because there's, there's no infrastructure. Right. So, you know, we didn't have the CDC, the daycare for or my daughter wasn't there anymore. Um, anybody that lived in base housing, the families were told to stay away. The military had to come back. And if you didn't have a place to stay, you were living in tents on the base. It, wow. was, it was like being deployed all over again, except the war zone was Panama City. Hmm. Um, one of the major hospitals shut down. It's just gone. Jobs and lives completely changed because not only did they not have a home to go home, a house to go home to, but now they don't even have a job anymore to earn a living to try and pick up the pieces. Right. Schools are still shut down and changed. Um, the, the blue tarps that they put over your roof to like waterproof it in and all that stuff. That's supposed to be good for 30 days. We're over a year later and there's still blue tarps all over the city. Um, it's just different. It, it never have I seen a place just completely be forgotten again. And, you know, so with my job, they, they kind of pulled all of us together and they're like, Hey, some of you have the chance to leave. Um, the, the military Tyndall did a really good job of saying, Hey, we get it. It's not going to be the same anymore. Um, this now's your opportunity that if you need childcare and if you need this, if you need, you know, let us know and we'll make, we'll try to make accommodations. And so after talking back and forth, me and my wife, and she's still evacuated now. So she left with an overnight bag and some diapers and clothes for the baby. And then essentially never came back to our house again. Hmm. Um, so like all of the baby stuff that we had pre gotten and prepped and stuff, that's all that useless and gone. The clothes, the food, like, it, it, yeah. So she went to Jacksonville for a couple of days. And then when I finally, we talked again, came to like, well, she went up to North Carolina with her, with her immediate family. And, uh, essentially was a refugee there for months. My dad came up to help me rebuild. And then when we, me and, and my wife talked and decided like, Hey, yeah, we can't live here anymore. We've got to go somewhere else. So we put our name in the hat and uh, we got orders to Hill Air Force Base, Florida or Hill Air Force Base, uh, Utah. Utah. Yeah. That place here. <laughs> um, but it's at the same time, it wasn't like I could just pick up and leave. Like I had, I had, I had a house that I technically owned that was in shambles and stuff. So I was fixing that the house, trying to coordinate how I was going to get everything over there. And then, you know, my wife basically across the country over there too. And so uh, everything luckily lined up good. 
I was able to completely fix the house. Like, I, I think the last load of trash got picked up two days before I left. Like, it was just, yeah, everything lined up insane. I, I was still loading stuff into the U-Haul the morning that I had to hit the road. It was crazy. Well, you made it happen, though. Right? Yeah. I'm sure you were busy. Yeah, had to. Yeah. So, showed up here to Hill Air Force Base, Salt Lake City, Utah. A uh, couple of weeks later, my wife and daughter finally reunited um, back here, and, and it's been it's been weird trying to establish here too because you know we're still I'm still opening boxes and stuff from when we got here that were packed away that I'm like ah we can't use any of this. It's, yeah moldy and broken and got thrown it away and you know my wife ended up uh she's back to school just finished her culinary certification and so like that was good too and it's just been a struggle trying to reestablish ourselves in it in someplace new but it kind of plays all together because had i not had I not like gone through that therapy a couple of years ago and, and hadn't had that like resiliency built in to where I, you know, I was able to change that mindset and, and, and adapt Jeremy, like, you know, when, when, when life hands you challenges, you adapt, right? Yeah. You throw that one to Jeremy cause he throws that out a lot. I love it. Um, that would have, you know, been catastrophic all over again. And I don't know how I would have handled that had I not had the help that I'd had throughout, but it took a lot to get there. You know, it took years before I was finally able to say, Hey, I need help. So, so what would you tell, I mean, people that listen to your story and I mean, for many of, of, of as you telling is, I'm like, Oh man, it brings me huge perspective because I, I feel so lucky and blessed uh, after seeing all the steps that you've had to go through to get to where you are right now, which I feel it's, it's, it's a much, much better place. Right. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I see a smile on your face. Yeah. A, a, a real a, smile. Yeah. Real. A real smile. Not that, not the fake one. Yeah. And, and I see um, opportunities are opening for you after all this struggle and, and, oh, man. and, and fight and, and survival. So um, where, where are you now? as far as uh, how you're feeling uh, your future is going to be. And also what would you tell to people that are going through what you were going to um, that maybe are listening right now and they're identifying themselves like, man, I'm there. I need to do something. Um, what do you tell somebody that it's in that place? So I, I, I've had the opportunity over the last year or so um, to kind of bring a lot of different things into perspective. I've recently got the chance to do a TED talk here on, on Hill Air Force Base on, on the topic of resiliency. And I, I got a chance to tell my story out there. And the, the three points that I brought up on that, the, the takeaways from the talk, um, my very first one that, that is, it's counter to what a lot of things, you know, you know, I'm in the Air Force, right? And the Air Force is always like, their approach throughout the whole suicide prevention has always been, um, you be proactive on checking on your people, get to know your people, ask them. It's okay to ask people if you're okay. And I get that, but that's not, my number one thing is at some point, 
you have to take ownership of your own mental well-being. So even though I was getting help, I still wasn't actually helping myself because I was holding back. And I had to get to that point of like, okay, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go all in and I'm going to get my help. So I had to own that I needed it for real. I needed it. So I take ownership. Stop lying, to, stop lying to yourself, basically. Exactly. When you need help, don't stop lying to yourself. Tell yourself that you're going to get help and actually go through with it. Yeah. Uh, my second point was uh, know who your go-tos are. So everybody's got that list of like people to call. Um, know who your go-tos are. And realize that those aren't going to be – it's not universal, right? Um, my friend that I work with now, I, I've, got, I've got somebody that I you know, work at the shop with who hands down I will call him if my car breaks down or you know, if I've got stuff around the house that needs to get done, um, you know, just at that level, right? Um, but he may or may not be the one that I pick the phone up when I've got some dark thoughts going on. Right. You know, that might be somebody else. So know who your go-tos are and they, and they might be different. And that third one is, this was, it's funny because I'd always thought like for this was more of the military side of it, but, but with, with marketer brothers like that, that's the, it's very easily universal is, is be the leader that you would want to be the one that you would need if you were ever in that position, because you may not be the one going through this to where you need to get help, but you might know someone who is, you might be supervising someone, you might be in charge of someone. They could work in your work center or something. And, and if, you know, if they're truly struggling and going through something to where they're going to need to get that help, don't just brush them aside. You know, I, I was lucky to have good leadership when I was going through my stuff. Yeah. So be that leader. If, if you're over someone that's in that, at that position, you know what I mean? Empathy. Yeah, right. exactly. Empathy. Very powerful. Empathy is, is so important, especially it's nowadays, you know, being human and, and just, just helping your fellow man, you know, it's, it's, it's so important. And listening. I think uh, listening is a huge one because I, I'm sure they were, they were watching you, but at the same time, at some point they had to listen to you and understand and put themselves in your shoes and, and, and know that, look, this, what, what gives you purpose and probably what, what still gives you purpose is you're serving. You're in the military. Yeah. It's your career, it's your life, it's what you've known. Yeah. So, um, had you not had that leadership that listened to you and paid attention, you probably could have lost that career. And that, and, sure. and that would have probably put you yet in another very dark place. Yep. And it, and it took me a while too, because aside from all this, um, so I, I, I'm active in the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program, right? And it's funny because I didn't want to do that program forever. And, and in a chain event of ways, it, it like changed, changed my life. So a good buddy of mine that I work with, uh, Kenny Gwynn, or used to work with, he's over at Tendall, so Kenny Gwynn convinced me to go to a Wounded Warrior event. 
and I'd been saying no to them for years. I was like, nope, you know, we've got guys missing legs. We've got guys, you know, that are blind. We, there's people way more hurt than I am. All I got was a real bad headache, some memory loss. And now I got bionic ears. It's, I, they, I, there's more people deserving, right? So he kindly, he finally convinced me to go to this event. And so I go to a Wounded Warrior event and the event was awesome. We did adaptive sports and, um, you know, it, it brought back teamwork and, and, you know, reestablished the brotherhood of a couple of different aspects. You know, EOD is always real tight knit, but it, it was refreshing to see that in a, in a different environment. And I, what was awesome was I actually got to meet a guy named Bill Lickman and I'll give, I will give Bill credit. He uh, waited all week, even though we were together every day, we made it through the entire week. And on the last night, we went out to get some food and uh, ended up talking. And he told me about this organization that he works with called Operation Enduring Warrior. And for hours, I was asking questions. We're looking up videos. And he was just telling me all about it. By I was like, I, I was hooked. Before my plane landed, after leaving the next day, I had already signed up as an as a community ambassador, and I was like, "Where can I go to an event? Like, I want to do stuff." And like a week later, he sent me the application. He's like, "You've got a purple heart, man. And like, we can get you in as an honoree to start doing stuff." And I was like, "Yeah, I want to do stuff. Like, let's get it. Let's do stuff." And so. You know, a few months later, you had me signed up to do an event with OEW. I did a, I did a Spartan race, and it, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was good. And then at the little family gathering that we were having after the event, uh, one of the, the the team guys there, Lopez, uh, he's like, oh, dude. Yeah, he was like, oh man, that's awesome. So uh, I heard you're, I heard you're gonna do this other race, and I was like. No, I, I didn't say I was going to do the race. He's like, oh, your friend said that you're doing the race. And I was like, I didn't think so. So then I went and asked my friend. And I was like, hey, did you say we're doing this race? And he was like, I mean, I said maybe. And I was like, okay, well, that can't mean anything. And then Lopez leaving. He's like, yeah, hey, I'll see you in a couple months. And You got, got, you got, you got Lopez. I got Lopez. <laughs> I got Lopez <laughs> in to do my second event. So... I finished, you know, finished that event and uh, Einstein at, at the, the other one was like, hey, so what's next? And I was like, well, I guess I, I can try to get a trifecta next year, right? And he's like, why next year? Like, why not? Why not this year? So, okay. So I talked to, you know, Bill and I was like, hey, you know, I, I, I guess I need a, a, to do a beast. And he's like, well, there's one in Dallas. It's like, okay and so he signed me up for that and what's crazy is that that was after the hurricane right so i like drove to dallas because they were like what where can you fly out of and i was like i don't even know if i can make it out of this city like much less fly anywhere i was like i'll make it so i like drove to dallas i did the beast got my trifecta and now they're you know they're like what's next and i was like dude i don't know like the hurricane and I'm not sure what's going to happen and it's just craziness. And so earlier this year, there was some Spartan races up, up here by, uh, by Salt Lake city. And 
a buddy that I met at Baton was uh, was Randy, Randy Dial, and he was like, hey, I'm coming to your area. And I was like, dude, do you need a place to crash? Like, I haven't got a spare bed. And he's like, you want to do a Spartan race? And I was like, I would love to do a Spartan race. <laughs> he's like, sweet. We're going to take this guy, Chris, through the Spartan race. And I was like, oh, I know Chris Wolf. Uh, yeah, where did they, yeah, we'll take him through the thing. And he's like, yeah, we probably shouldn't. It's up and down this mountain, and there's only going to be like three of us. And I was like, wait, wait, what? And yeah, basically two, three days before, we had a plan. And the day of, there was four of us, five of us, pushing and pulling Chris Wolf up and down this mountain here at the highest elevation. And uh, it, yeah, it was nuts. That, awesome. I saw the pictures, I saw the video. That, that's, that, was, that was amazing, you know. And, and uh, when are you interviewing Chris? Rick? We're interviewing to Chris. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're interviewing him tomorrow. We're going to meet him in, um, it, all, this, all these knuckleheads are actually uh, at Patrick's Air Force Base right now. And they're, and they're, they're going to be skydiving all weekend, so... So I'm crashing. I'm crashing their party with my kids and, and wife, and go camping there. And I'm gonna interview everybody there, man. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's so fitting for Veterans Day. And and uh, Wally, man, your your story is amazing. Thanks so much for for telling us. You know, it it uh, I think I think uh, it, it brings huge perspective to me, and I think to so many that are gonna watch this and, and understand. You know all the ups and downs, and and and, and all the struggles that you, that you have gone through, and and which is probably the story of many that uh, that sure. have to to endure it and and survive it, and 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 still the next day be at work, right? Yeah. Then the next day still serve, and the next day still you know um, do the things that they said that they will commit to do. So I, I thank you for not quitting. Number one. I thank you for um, persevering, and, and, and man, we, we just can't thank you enough for your service, and it's an honor and pleasure to have you here. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity that you guys give me to come out here. Like I said, I just started really sharing this story uh, earlier this year, so I um, feel like I'm in a position now that it, it, if I'm going to tell it and it helps at least one person, then it's better than not, right? You know, yes, so. exactly right. And it's going to help many, many, man. I, I know it already. So thanks yeah. so much from the bottom of our hearts. We appreciate your time. Thank you again for your service. Yeah. So excited to interview so many veterans uh, in active duty. Well, cool, not a veteran yet. <laughs> you're still, yeah, you're still going. Uh, I can't We're think cool. you enough. You know, like I, like, like I said at the beginning, you know, this, if, if, if you ever get a chance of uh, go to EnduringWarrior.org and, and uh, become a community ambassador, it's, it's amazing. I mean, uh, I met a gentleman that was, he was close to his 70s in, in Dallas. And I don't know if you remember, he was carrying the, the American flag, I mean, the OAW flag the whole time. Yep. He just approached me even before. He's like, I came to volunteer. I'm going to carry the flag the whole time. You know, 16 miles, nine hours. And he approached me at the end and gave me a hug. And he's like, thank you, man. My heart is full. I, I, I can't thank you enough. It's, it was the best experience of my life. So if you all can, if, if everybody, anybody watching is, it wants to experience that, we welcome you with open arms. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Check us out, sign up, and just come meet people, amazing people like Wally. Yeah, operationenduringwarrior.org. Uh, go to that site. There's a link where you can sign up as a community ambassador. Um, it takes absolutely nothing. You, you make a fundraising page, but you, that's just there. Once you sign up as a community ambassador, you can uh, get on the Facebook groups and Instagram groups, and there they share all of the events that OEW is going to be at. And feel free to come on out and meet a great group of people with an amazing mission. And uh, I, I'm so lucky to have met so many awesome people through OEW. And, and then, you know, Air Force Wounded Warrior, OEW, Operation yeah. Valor, Oscar Mike everyone it's hey, awesome. man. you're still a young guy it's just the beginning yeah right yeah. it's just the beginning so and now with battle bars partnering yeah. with oew it's everything's just gonna get better all around it's awesome. yeah, man, hey, we're gonna uh, interview the battle bars guys uh, I, I spoke to i spoke to alex today and and uh it's coming up soon and you know they, they have a great story too so nice. uh, we're gonna keep this going man that's awesome well again thanks so much man Send us the link of that TED Talk as soon as the TED people uh, upload it because we want to watch it and uh, looking forward to the next one, man. All right. Sorry. Just you. I just looked to know. Hey, that's okay. That's okay. We, we still have viewers and they haven't dropped off. So they're good. You, you, you had him hooked. So, and, and whoever didn't get to watch, watch it in parts. Who cares, right? <laughs> yep. It's out there. Thanks, Wally. Appreciate you. Bye, Ricky. Hey man. Okay, guys.